Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. So we're in our last week of Advent, the last Sunday before, before Christmas, and so I'm excited to share in God's Word uh, with you on this morning. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read a very familiar passage of Scripture. We're going to read Luke uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And, and this morning, m- my goal in this Advent sermon, this Advent message, is for for us to have clarity on who Jesus, who Jesus is. Um, oftentimes during, during this season, during, during the Christmas season, uh, one, one part of Jesus is kind of amplified, right? The, the child in a manger is amplified. And, and so I want to kind of look at, look at that, and, and I want us to have an a, 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 a accurate view of, of who Jesus is. Yes, he was the child in the manger, but that's not the totality of who he was and who he eventually became. And so today I just want to highlight these scriptures and actually just add some clarity today so that we can know who Jesus is. Because if, if some of us knew who Jesus was, it would change our lives. And for some of us, we kind of know who he is, but but if there was a way that we can know more of who he was, it, it would increase our relationship and our love for Jesus. And so that's that's my goal on this Advent, so that we can actually appreciate that he has come, but we can also look forward with hope to his coming again. Amen? So if you, you have a Bible, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, it says this, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that the whole empire should be registered. I want you to think of a census. You know, the census comes by your house and they knock on your door, try to get you to fill up this little form, get on your nerves. You never turn it back in, so we don't have accurate census numbers in the U.S. because you don't participate. But this is what's happening. This, they, they call it registration. And so they, they do this whole registration for the entire empire. Verse 2 says, this first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4 says, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Your version might say there was no room in the inn. At least that's what you heard in children's church and nursery growing up in school. Verse 8, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Let us pray. Father, we just glorify you and we praise you today, God. Um, Lord, I, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to come before each other to worship around your word, to sing songs and to study your word and to grow in our faith and to learn more about you. My, my prayer today, God, is that this would be uh, a Sunday where we did not go through the motions, where we have an uncommon experience with you this morning. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts and shine your light in the dark places in our hearts, God. I pray that today we would grasp a hold of who you are. I pray, God, that we would understand the gospel today and understand who your son is and what he has done for us, God. God, compel us to follow him. God, compel us to follow you with no regret, with reckless abandonment, God. God, compel our hearts through your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit, God, to follow you with our whole hearts today, God. And so, Father, I pray today, God, that we would have a spirit of gratitude, a spirit of thanksgiving for who you are and all that you have done in our lives. And, Father, I pray personally, Father, for the people who are in this room who are stuck, people in this room, God, who want to know more about you, and they may even know who you are, God, but it's it doesn't seem to move them towards growth and move them in their love for you, Lord. And so I pray this morning that today will be radically different, God. I pray that it would just not be another cool sermon or some information, God, but I pray that there will be real live transformation that takes place in the hearts and minds of your people. And so, Father, we thank you today for your word, and I thank you for your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, amen. You may be seated in the Lord's presence. My sermon title this morning is, This Ain't No Ordinary Baby. This ain't no ordinary baby. I'm from the South, so I can use ain't if I want to. When you think of Christmas and you think of Jesus, what what do you think? And and what, what is portrayed when you drive around the neighborhoods with lights. Typically, there are a couple things that you see. We drove around this week, and we looked at some of our neighbors' neighbors' lights um, to, to admire them because we, we didn't put up any lights this year. Don't judge us. But, but we watched what other people were doing, and, and we, we saw a lot of reindeer um, in yards. Uh, we, we saw um, more than anything, we, we saw the, the nativity scene. We, we saw the, the, the wise men standing over baby Jesus in the manger. And I think that that is the portrayal that we oftentimes get around Christmas time. But, but I think one, one particular movie highlights this idea of stuckness around the Christmas time and how we see Jesus, and, and, and this is a movie that my wife put me on to um, because I don't watch this type of television. 
Uh, but, but she turned me on to this movie called Talladega Nights, the, the, the Ballad of Ricky Bobby. And if you haven't seen this movie, I don't, I don't recommend you see it. But, but there's a scene in the movie where they're, they're, they're about to eat together, and, and the main character who's played by Will Ferrell wants to say grace before they eat. And, and it goes a little something like this, and I've edited this down just because it's, it's for TV and not for church. So there are some parts of this that will be missing if you are familiar with the movie. Uh, but, but he starts off the prayer, Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers in the South call you, Jesus. We, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of dominoes, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. And the wife uh, pipes up and she says, hey, um, you, know, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. And, and, and then his best friend who is sitting next to him, who's also a crazy character, says, I, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo shirt because it says I want to be formal, but I want to party too. And I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to think of Jesus with eagles and wings singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with an angel band. And I'm in the front row, hammer drunk. R Ricky, well, 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 Ricky says, well, well look, I, I like Christmas Jesus best when I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus, teenage Jesus, or bearded Jesus, whatever you want. Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist, look, I like the baby version of Jesus best. Do you hear me? When I win the races, I get the money. And here's how he closes his prayer. Dear eight-pound, six-ounce newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant so cuddly but still omnipotent. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. You may not pray like that, but that is how you see Jesus at times. But I want to tell you something today. This ain't no ordinary baby. And this baby got out of that manger, and this baby went from that manger, became a man, suffered, and went to the cross to die for the sins of his people. So he ain't no ordinary baby, and he ain't no ordinary man. He is God in the flesh. And so there are two things I want to highlight from our text today, two main portions that we're going to look at. The first thing is that we'll see the sovereignty of God in the coming of the Savior. We'll see the sovereignty of God in the coming of the Savior, and we'll see the sovereignty of God in salvation for all people. Number one, we'll look at the sovereignty of God in the coming of the Savior, and number two, we'll look at the sovereignty sovereignty of God in salvation for all people. Let me clarify because I don't want to assume that everyone knows what the sovereignty of God is. The sovereignty of God just simply means this, that God is always in control and always will be in control. God rules and reigns from heaven on high. There is nothing that happens in the world that God does not know about. There is nothing that happens in the world that God is not involved in. There is nothing that happens in your life life that God has to remove himself away from but every single thing that happens in the world and every single thing that happens in your life God is sovereign in that God is always in control even when you don't feel like it and even when you don't think you feel him so 
the sovereignty of God in the coming of the Savior. During the time of the birth of Jesus, the main rulers of the world were the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was ruled by what's called an emperor. And so when we get to this story in the opening first two verses of the story, we read about Caesar Augustus. He is the emperor uh, at the time of Jesus' birth. And so I want to clarify something. Caesar is not his real name. Caesar is just a title for emperor. When we talk about the White House, we don't typically call the guy by his government first name. We do these days because we don't have respect for people. But typically we refer to his office and his office is called the office of the what? Come on class, call the what? All right, you're slow but you're worth waiting on. And so in their days, it was not called the president. He was actually the emperor. And the emperor, this, his real name is Octavian Gaius. Octavian Gaius. And he is the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. You may have heard of him before. And so this particular Caesar, he comes from a line of important and noble people. And at this time, he is the most, empower, most powerful and dominant leader in the world. His power is unparalleled. He is a leader of the world the unquestioned supreme leader and if you were to ask anybody during those days and times who the most important person in the world was they would tell you that it was Caesar he was the most important person in the world he was so powerful and, and so dominant and so supreme that they actually gave him the title of Augustus if you think about all the other Caesars they would just call whatever their first name was Caesar but he goes by Caesar Augustus you might read that and think that's somebody's name, but I want to bring clarity for you today. And so, class, you can take out your notes and write this down on your paper. Caesar is a title of the emperor, but Augustus is a title that they ascribe to this particular Caesar. And Augustus literally means the supreme, sublime, majestic one. Supreme, sublime, majestic one, meaning that there is no one like him. So they called him Caesar Augustus, meaning supreme. Supreme, sublime, majestic one. There is no one like him. Now, when we think about this, if we pause for a second, that sounds like a title that should only be reserved for God. But yet they are calling Caesar Augustus. They are calling him the supreme, sublime leader of the world. He is, there is no one like him. So they call him Caesar Augustus because he is a God-like figure in the Roman world. I'm talking about power. Like, like no man has ever had. He is a powerful leader in the Roman world. And so they call him Augustus. But that was repulsive to the Jews. And here's why. The Jews were right to be repulsed because they thought that Augustus was not a title that should be reserved to a man. They thought that the only person who deserved to be called supreme and sublime and majestic and no one like him should be God and God alone. And they were right in this. But the Romans treated the Caesar like he was God. One inscription from that time referred to him as savior of the world. And so we think about that and we hear it in our context, we call somebody savior of the world. We're not talking about a man. We're talking about God. But this is how they refer to Caesar Augustus as a savior of the world. So I want you to get a hold and think about his power. And at the time that this is happening, he's at the height of his power. 
He is at the height of his power. He's a God-like figure and the savior of his people, and he is exercising and wielding power for his own purposes and for his own benefit. And one of the ways that the Roman emperors would exercise power and authority those days was through the collection of taxes. And so this is what has been set in motion in the first three verses. Caesar Augustus is wielding his power. He's showing that he is God-like. He's showing that he is supreme. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to collect taxes from all the people. And the way he's going to do that is he's going to make people register for the census. Look at verses 1 through 3. I want you to be careful to notice something. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. I think you should underline decree. If you take notes, I think you should underline the word decree because that's important. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went out to be registered, even each man to his own town. And so here's what happens. Every man in every province throughout the empire, no matter where he was, he had to be registered. And so when we get registered for, for a census so we do a census, they typically come to our door and we get we get we can mail it back. Right. But in those days, in order for the census to take place and for people to register, they had to go back to the town of their origin. So if we did it the same way today in our time, some of you would have to go back to some far distant places. Some of you would have to go back to South Florida because that's where most of y'all are from anyway. So everybody just be up and going to Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Dayton Broward would be our portion. Right. And so you would have to walk to those places. And, and every man had to return to the home of his ancestors. He had to go to the place of his origins. He had to go back to his hometown. So that meant what? People had to travel. Wherever you were, you had to travel and go back to your hometown. So if people had to travel, what would happen when they travel was they would be taxed. And so Caesar is getting his money by making the people travel to be registered so that he can levy taxes against his people so that he can pad the pockets of the empire. And so Caesar is flexing his political muscle by making a decree that would set people in motion at the power of his word. And so he says this. And when he says move, people have to move. He has power. He's willing his power. And he's doing what he wants to do because he has made a decree. He has declared something and people are following it. They are following his own purpose and his own plan. But unbeknownst to Caesar, he has set off a chain of events that would eventually turn the whole world upside down. Because what Caesar meant for evil, God is working for good. So even when he thinks that he's doing something for his own purpose and benefit, God is working on God's behalf for God's own purpose and God's own benefit. That is good news for people like you and I. Here's why. I think the uh, Proverbs tells us something. Proverbs 21 verse 5 says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. If the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wills. That means that God is in control at all times. And so he thinks he's in control, but really he's just an instrument in the hands of the Lord. His decree is not really his decree. His decree is actually the Lord's decree. It, the Proverbs 19.21 says this, many plans are in a person's heart, but the Lord's 
decree will prevail. The Lord's decree will prevail. That's why it's important for us not to get caught up and put our hope in politicians and in politics. That does not mean you're not getting involved. That does not mean you don't lean left or you don't lean right or that you don't vote red or that you don't vote blue. That doesn't mean you don't get involved. But what it does mean is, is that you don't bank your hopes on it. You don't bank your hopes on politicians. You don't bank your hopes on student loan debt being reduced because it might not happen. You don't put your hopes in whatever a politician says. You put your hope in God. Their decrees are not really their decrees. Their decrees are actually the Lord's decrees, and the Lord never disappoints, but man does. This is good news for us. Don't, don't put your hope in man. Don't put your hope in a governmental system. Yes, participate if you want to participate. Yes, keep up and know what's going on. You should not be ignorant of what's going on around you primarily because you need to know how to pray. But, but you can also be involved. Just don't put your hope in it. Don't put your hope in it. And that's important. Your hope should be in God. And here's why the decrees of the Lord will prevail. The Roman Empire at this time covered two million square miles over three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. So when I talk about the Roman Empire and I'm talking about Caesar Augustus' power, I'm not just talking about a neighborhood or a block. I'm talking about 2.3 million square miles. I'm talking about over 60 million people on three different continents. That's how powerful he was. 60 million people live within the borders of the Roman Empire. And you know what? God's decree is still working. Here's how I know this. In the midst of the millions of people in the vast and expansive empire that the decree of Caesar would have reached is a newly pregnant couple living in a small town called Nazareth. So Caesar makes a decree for all people, but he doesn't know what he set in motion because people that he does not know in a village that he's never been in are affected by his decree, but they're not affected for his purposes. They're actually put in motion for God's purposes. Here's what it says in verses four through seven. Look at your Bible. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. To the city of David. That's important. That's important. You want to highlight stuff today. Don't sit here like a knot on the log. Underline. Take some notes. The city of David. Underline that. Which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and the family line of David. That's important. God doesn't write anything in the word without purpose. That means something. To be registered along with Mary who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger. Because there was no guest room available for them on the surface what looks to be a flex by Caesar is actually the sovereignty of God at work Caesar's flexing on him he's flexing him I can get people to move I can just say something and I can send the whole empire in motion but underneath that we see the sovereignty of God at work there's something larger going on. Caesar's decree was a part of God's divine plan all along Caesar thinks he's doing something for Caesar but Caesar doesn't know he's doing something for God which means this, that even if you are an evil ruler, God can still use your decisions to bring about his divine will and purposes. That's why we can't get so caught up in what happens in the day-to-day -day life. That's why when people make decisions that are in power, we can't lose our minds like all hope is lost because we don't know that God might be working something out on our behalf. And here you have Joseph and Mary in this small village. And Joseph has to go back to his place of origin. Joseph is from Judea in Bethlehem, the city of David. This is what the Bible tells us. 
And so for seemingly practical reasons, here's the problem with what Joseph is about to do. The, the, the registration is called for. People got to move. Joseph is, is, is from a far area, area far from Nazareth, but he's got a pregnant fiance with him. And she's not one month pregnant. She's not two months pregnant. She's not three months pregnant. She's not four months pregnant. She's not five months pregnant. She's not six months pregnant. She's far, far along. Now, I don't know, I haven't researched this. I don't know what the limitations are on when a woman can travel in her pregnancy or hop on a plane. But I just want to let you know something. There are no planes during this time. And so here they are having to travel 100 miles in the late stages of her pregnancy on foot. Now, every woman is, mm, mm. And every woman is thinking about the dude that could possibly be her husband or already is her husband. She's thinking, I wish he would tell me to go anywhere. One mile. But they have to walk 100 miles. And, and Joseph, I get it. I understand. He wants her to go with him. Why? Because she's so far along. And he's going long distance. He wants to be present for the birth of his child. I feel his pain. He, he doesn't want to be absent when his baby is born. He wants to be pregnant. And he was correcting his assessment because by the time they got there, guess what? She gave birth. But I want you to imagine the inconveniences of Mary, uh, of what she's experiencing, having to travel 100 miles in the late stages of your pregnancy. There, there's nowhere to stay on the way there. They're out in the weather. They're out in the freezing cold and she's pregnant and she's walking or she's riding on the donkey, best case scenario. Now imagine the inconvenience of what she has to go through. She, she has to experience this inconvenience, this, this type of suffering, but I think it's a precursor to the life of the child. The mom is already suffering to show us a precursor of what is to come in the life of her baby. And, and so even in her inconvenience, God is working in her inconvenience. That, that's good news for us because somebody here today feels like they are inconvenienced by something going on in your life. You feel like you would rather not deal with something. But I want to give you some hope this morning that even in your inconvenience, it doesn't mean that God ain't working on your behalf. Even in your inconvenience, God is doing something. When it looks like God is doing nothing, God is actually doing something in your life. God is never not busy. God is always working, even if it feels like your plans are not working out or things are not in motion or things have been set back or things are not going according to plan. God is at work, even in your inconvenience. That's good news for you today. And God is using the decree of Caesar and the decisions of Joseph to bring about his own purposes. God is using the decree of Caesar and the decision of Joseph to bring about his own purpose. Joseph thought he needed Mary to go within the Bethlehem, the seat of David, so he didn't miss the birth of his child. But God had Joseph take Mary with him because he knew that the baby had to be born in Bethlehem. And this is important for us because these things are not just happening to happen, but this is all in fulfillment of what God had already promised through the prophets this Jesus being born in Bethlehem is fulfilling Micah chapter 5. If we look at Micah chapter 5, starting at verse 2, verses 2 through 3, here's what it says. But you, O Bethlehem, Epethra, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. 
Yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the past will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. This is hundreds of years before Jesus is born. And this is what God decreed that a savior who will be born of a woman would happen in Bethlehem. And so Joseph just thinks he wants his baby mama with him. But God is at work in that. It also fulfills Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. You've heard this before. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David where they go into the city of David. So this is all fulfilling a prophecy. And I want to tell you this. These prophecies are not just some cute stories and things that are happening that are good to read to help us get through today and tomorrow. This is real stuff happening in real time to real people and real history. And we should be in awe of it because God is orchestrating it all. We just read these cute little Christmas stories and, oh, that's Hebrew, the Prince of Peace, a quiet little baby. But no, this is God actually moving in real history. These are not just some characters in a coloring book. This is not just a part of some nursery rhyme. This is happening in real time to real people. We should be in awe that God is moving in the lives of ordinary people. Joseph and Mary are not nobles. They are regular, common folks. And God is working in their lives. And we should look at this and we should say, God has always been in control of human history. Even things that are happening in a minute corner of the globe, God is involved with it. God is using real people with real lives to bring his purposes to pass. And this is not only true for the great events of salvation history, but also for the ordinary events of life. God is working out his will and God will get the glory out of every situation. This is good for us. To see that the sovereignty of God is at work in the ordinary. And you may think that your life is ordinary. And it is. (laughs) But you serve an extraordinary God. And that extraordinary God is doing work in your ordinary life. In the greatest book ever written, in my opinion, on the sovereignty of God, Arthur Pink writes this. Nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass otherwise than God has eternally purpose. Here is a foundation of faith. Here is a resting place for the intellect. Here is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. It is not blind faith, unbridled evil, man or devil, but the the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling it according to his own good pleasure and for his own eternal glory. God is working things out. God is using everything, even the hard things, just like the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. And verse 7 says that then she gave birth to a firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. An inn was just a guest house where a group of travelers would stay together 
in a room. That's what an inn was. This was not Marriott. This was not Holiday Inn Express with continental breakfast. Does it come with continental breakfast? Is what you ask before you book your room. Facts. But this is not that. This is something cold and dingy. That this is that. And so they couldn't even find a room there. They could not find space. No one would make space for them in somewhere cold and dingy. They wouldn't make space for a pregnant woman and her child, even in a room where other bunch of people are staying. And so they can't even live in the cold and the dingy. They have to go to a place much lower and much more inferior. They have to go outside. And they go outside and, and, and think about Mary's situation. I told you it's a precursor to what's going to happen in the life of her child. They have to sleep in a building that's adjacent to the house that is outside. And there is no place for her to put her newborn baby except in a manger. You know what a manger is? A manger is an animal's feeding trough. She lays her baby in the places where animals eat their food. This is not a place you want your baby to be. This is a circumstance you don't want to find yourself in. This is the worst case scenario and God is in the worst case scenario. God is working in the worst thing possible. Who wants to put their baby in trash? Who wants their baby to be outside? Who wants to put their baby in the filth of where an animal has been eaten? And this is what is happening. Think of how this is for Mary. She's suffering through traveling a long distance and then being outside and then having to put her baby in an animal's feeding place. And she brings her child into the world in the lowliest of circumstances. And everything about his birth points us to humility. All we see in the birth of Jesus is humility, suffering, and rejection. No one was willing to make room for the baby. I told you this is a precursor to his life. The first thing I want to point out about the birth of our Savior is that not having room for him, them not having room for him, points out our own sinful rejection of God. From the moment of his birth in Bethlehem, people did not make room for Jesus, and they put him on the outside, and the world has tried to keep him outside ever since. And this is what's happening. And I know we are making room under the tree to receive gifts. We're making, if we're being honest, we're making room under the tree and we're making room in our budgets for gifts. But have you made room in your heart for Jesus? Have you surrendered your heart to the lordship of Jesus Christ? While you're sipping on eggnog. Spiked eggnog for some people because I know my church. Hot cocoa. Hot chocolate. While you're making room for family and friends. Make room for Jesus. The second thing I want to point out about our Savior, about the humanity, is the humanity of our Savior. He entered the world like any other person. 
in the incarnation, God became flesh and dwelt among us. I talked about that last week. I don't want to do a recap on the incarnation. Go back and watch it on YouTube. But the God of the universe entered into the world, taking on all that it means to be human, our emotions and our physical limitations. And and so the good news in that is this, that God came close. He didn't save us from a distance, but he came close so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. In becoming a man, Jesus offered his body as a sacrifice for our sins and and was physically raised raised from the grave. There could be no crucifixion and resurrection without the incarnation. If he doesn't come as a man, there is no crucifixion and there is no bodily resurrection. And so I just want to say this about the incarnation. Jesus had to become one of us to save us. He had to become one of us to save us. And so I want to point to you that there is sovereignty of the coming of the Savior. But there's also the sovereignty of God in the salvation of his people. Let's look at verses verses 8. Through 14, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, hey, wait a minute. Don't be scared. I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Underline that in your Bible, all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in manger. And then suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts of the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. And so we look at this and we see that God is sovereign in the salvation of his people. Like a break in a movie scene, they, they switch from the whole birth narrative and they switch the scene to some shepherds at night out in the field doing what shepherds do, tending to their flocks, and all of a sudden an angel of the Lord appears to these big burly shepherds and interrupt their regularly scheduled programming and the shepherds are just doing their job and an angel of the Lord appears and all of a sudden these big burly shepherds are terrified. They see a ghost or what they think is a ghost. It's actually an angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord comes to the shepherds because this is not just a localized event that has to do with Joseph and Mary. But the birth of a savior was more than about the Roman Empire. It had worldwide implications. It had worldwide implications. He says, I proclaim to you the good news, the great, the good news of great joy that for all people, for all people today in the city of David, a savior was born for you who is the Messiah and Lord. But it's for all people, not just for the Jews, not just for the Greeks, it's for everybody, for all people. A savior and a Messiah has come. The one that everybody has been looking for has come. A savior is simply someone who rescues people from death and destruction. And this savior has come and the savior had not come to rescue them from Rome's grip or to set them free from the tyranny of Caesar. He did not come to rescue them from something superficial, but he came to rescue them from their greatest nemesis, which was sin and death. And this baby was the real Messiah and real Savior. Caesar was no real king. He had no real power except for that which God gave him. He had no power to save. He couldn't defeat that which was undefeated, which was death. And I love the way Charles Haddon Spurgeon talks about Jesus in the manger. He says those little arms in the manger were One day we'll grapple with death and destroy it. Because this ain't no ordinary baby. And here he is 
lying in the manger. And the first people that the angel of the Lord tells the good news to are some shepherds. Now, you think shepherd and you think good. Because if you read your Bible, you know that Moses was a shepherd. You know that King David was a shepherd. You know that Jesus is referred to as a shepherd. You know pastors are called shepherds. So you have a favorable view of what a shepherd is. But it's not the same in this text. Shepherds did not have a favorable reputation. Shepherds were actually outcasts. Shepherds lived out in the field where they worked. They were treated as unclean people. With the exception of lepers, shepherds were the lowest class of people in Israel. They were a low class of people. They were at the bottom of the totem pole. They were at the bottom of the scale of power and privilege. They were the lowest of the low. But these are the people that God chose to bring the good news to first. He could have brought it to the religious leaders. He could have brought it to the, the leaders in Rome. He could have brought it to anybody. But he came to bring the good news first to shepherds, to the outcasts, to the down and out, to the people that no one else wanted to be associated with. He said that the gospel is good news for all people. When he said all, he meant all. It's not a rich gospel. It's not a poor gospel. It's not a black gospel. It's not a white gospel. It's not a Hispanic gospel. It's not an Asian gospel. It's a gospel for all people. So what does it mean? The shepherds show that by them receiving the news first, that a person's background does not qualify them for salvation. He didn't come to political figures or religious leaders. We see that salvation is not even a matter of status. Salvation is a matter of the sovereign will of God. The shepherds couldn't have mustered up enough worthiness for the good news to come to them. But God, for his own pleasure, chose to bring the good news of salvation to the shepherds. In the coming of the shepherds, we see the gospel of grace at work. We see the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor of God. God's grace coming to bear on undeserving sinners. When God saves, he does not just save some kind of good people, but he saves those who by their sins, don't deserve life but rather they deserve death yet he offers them life that's the good news of God's grace this is why the good news is great joy because it came to people who did not deserve it and you might be saying oh that's good for the shepherds no that's good for you because you don't associate with the noble you are one of the shepherds God did not come to save the proud and the mighty he came to save the low and the needy he came to save those unclean, the dirty, the sinful, those caught in struggles, those caught in addictions, those who can't get out of their own way. He came to seek and save that which was lost. This is good news because this is who we are. He came to save those who are humble enough to recognize that they needed a savior. This is what the good news is. It also shows us that the gospel is for the humble. His birthplace cries out to us that the savior came in humility. He abandoned the glories of heaven to accept the limitations of earth. He forsook his divine privilege to be born in a place of dirt and shame so that he can identify with the lowly. So if you feel shame over what you've done, you feel shame over how you live, God identifies with that. No, he doesn't have your sin, but he came to give you his righteousness so that you can go free in his righteousness. He took on your sin, stood in your place on the cross. God poured out the punishment that you deserve while you got to go free. And this is what he's done for us. He came in the lowly. He came humble. Reminds me of Philippians chapter 2 
verses 5 through 11 that says this, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. He was born in the manger, but he didn't stay there. And he hung on a cross, died, but he didn't stay dead. He was raised to life. And now he sits at the right hand of the father in glory, ruling and reigning, interceding on behalf of his people. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I want to look at the last three verses and then I'm done. Here's what the angel of the Lord says to the shepherd, to the shepherds. This will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And then all of a sudden, a, a party breaks out. A praise break just breaks out right there in the middle of the farm. All of a sudden, they, they start shouting and dancing right in the middle of the farm. I want you to imagine this. You think praise is just solely for church. No, praise is for everywhere. Because they have a praise party right there in the middle of the shepherd, right there in the middle of the sheep dung, right in the middle of the mess. Praise is happening right here. Verse 13 says there's a multitude of the heavenly hosts of the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to all the people he favors. A praise party breaks out. And here's what's happening. They tell them to go. There's going to be a sign for you shepherds that, that what we said is true. And here's why he has to give them the sign because they would have expected that the Messiah would have been royal. They would expect it for him to be like King Simi in, uh, not King Simi, but uh, Prince Akeem in coming to America. They would expect it to be rose petals when he walked. They'd expect for him to have these bathers following him around. They'd expect him to have, have assistants and all of these wonderful things, right? But no, he's, he's in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. So here's the implications. I got three points and then I'm done. Three quick points. Because we must do something with this. You don't just receive good news and say, oh, that's good news. Good news is supposed to change us. Out of everything that I've just said, that, that God is sovereign, sovereign in the coming of the Savior, and that God is sovereign in salvation of all his people, what do we do with a God who is sovereign? What do you do to a God that has proven himself, that he works behind the scenes, even in your mess, he's working on your behalf? There are things you look back in your life and you can think back to certain seasons of your life when you did not know how you were going to make it or how you were going to get out or how you were going to pay for the thing or get out of the situation or move from one place to the next. You look back at those seasons and you sit here now and you see that God was working all along. Why am I moving here? Now you know why you move where you moved. Because you can look back, you can see the hand of God working in your life to get you out of situations. You didn't know that God was working. You thought you might have been being punished. You thought that you were where you were, and as a matter of bad decisions, you were just stuck. But God was working even in your mess. Well, what do I do with that? I don't just do nothing. I do something. Point number one, after receiving the word, they obeyed the word of the Lord. They obeyed the word of the Lord. How do I know? Because they told them what to do and where the sign was. They left 
Immediately they left the farm. They left where they were tending sheep to go see the baby. Somebody told them and they left. They immediately obeyed. Number one thing we must do to what God is doing in the world is we must obey God. We must put our faith and trust in him. They found out when they got there that God was a keeper of his word. The angel of the Lord said there will be a baby in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. They got there and it was just what the angel of the Lord said because God doesn't break his promises. Number one is obey. Number two, here's what it says they did in verse 17 and, eight, verse 17 and 18. After seeing them, they're talking about Joseph, Mary, and the baby. They reported the message they were told about the child. They reported the message, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. You mean to tell me they heard the good news that brought them great joy, and they didn't keep it to themselves? They actually went out and told strangers and family members and other people they had a relationship with about the great news, the good news that brought them great joy? How is it that we sit on what we have? Christmas is going to pass. You're going to buy gifts for people. You're going to receive gifts from people. But you're not going to give people the greatest gift that you could ever give them. They shared the good news. We obey, which shows growth. And then we share. Because I just wanted to tie in the mission. Grow, share, and serve in case you didn't know. Whatever. Shameless plug. They went to see, but then they went and told. And people were amazed by, it says they were amazed by what the shepherds shared. Like today, people are amazed when Christmas season comes. We were in the mall a few weeks ago. We went on, I think we were foolish enough to go on Black Friday. And it was Christmas season in full effect. The mall was packed. And you can feel, it was palpable, you could feel the, the palpable Christmas energy in the air. People were amazed. Kids taking pictures with Santa in lines. I was amazed too. So that's pretty cool. But being amazed by something doesn't mean you believe it. It's possible to be entertained by the Christmas story, but not embrace the Christmas story. And so people were amazed by what happened. Jesus comes for all people, but not all people respond. But that doesn't negate the responsibility to share. And the third thing that happened was that there was worship. You see obedience, you see evangelism or sharing, and you see worship. Because here's what it says. It mentions Mary. Like it cuts back to Mary. And it says Mary treasured all that God had done in her heart. And thought about it often. And I'm wondering what Mary did. And it literally means that Mary, although she was puzzled by what was going on in her life, she was still seeking to find out what it all really meant. She was just not satisfied with knowing the surface information that she found out. But she wanted to dig a little deeper. This is worship. She didn't just want to do what God said. She wanted to grow in God. She wanted to expand in her relationship with God. She wanted to dig deeper. She, wanted to, she wasn't just trying to make sense of it. She was trying to cultivate a relationship with a God that brought a relationship to her. She was seeking to understand and grow in all that God was doing in her life. 
And let that be our response during this Christmas season. That we obey, that we share, and that we worship. And why do we do this? Because this ain't no ordinary baby. And Jesus ain't no ordinary man. He is God with us. Let us worship him. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you.